We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. We've got another debate for you this week and it was an excellent foreign policy discussion on whether it's time for the West to get tough with China. We had Kishore Mahubani, the Singaporean diplomat, going up against the Conservative MP who's been very outspoken on China, Tom Tugendhat. It's a great conversation and I found myself toing and froing, being persuaded by one side and then back again to the other. The debate was chaired by Manveen Rana, senior investigative journalist at The Times and host of The Stories of Our Time podcast and we hope you enjoy it. Now let's go to the episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared online debate. It's time for the West to get tough with China. I am delighted though to be able to announce our speakers for tonight. We've got a great lineup. Proposing the motion we have Tom Tugendhat, the Conservative MP for Tunbridge, Edenbridge and Malling and Chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. He also leads the China Research Group of Conservative MPs to promote fresh thinking about how Britain should respond to the rise of China. Before becoming an MP, Tom was in the British Army and served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And then speaking against the motion, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Kishore Mabubani, who's a Singaporean former diplomat and academic. He was Singapore's permanent representative to the United Nations and president of the United Nations Security Council. He's currently a Distinguished Fellow at the Asia Research Institute at the National University of Singapore. And his latest book, which you'll be able to see strategically placed over his shoulder in just a moment, Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy, is a great read if you're interested in this subject. Before I call on them to start their speeches, I just want to let you know the results for the opening vote for the motion, 59%, against the motion, 16%, and as yet, undecided, 26%. That's undecided about the motion, it's time for the West to get tough with China. So without further ado, I'll just call on Tom Tugendhat to propose the motion. Hello, it's a great pleasure to be with you this evening. It's worth remembering where we are in this uh, context, because for much of the last two or three years, many of us have spoken about very little else And that hasn't been a matter of choice. That's been because of the way that the world has changed. 
Now, in recent days, it's become even more stark for those of us who have uh, strong uh, alliances or friendships or partnerships with Australia. Uh, it's become even more clear. I don't know how many of you would have seen on Twitter recently, but China's uh, foreign affairs spokesman, uh, who renamed himself Mohammed somewhat bizarrely while he was working as a diplomat in Pakistan in an attempt to become closer to uh, the Muslim community there before he realized that being close to Muslims wasn't a great thing for a Chinese communist member to be, uh, has started tweeting photographs of, or faked photographs of Australian soldiers murdering Afghan children. The reason I bring this up is not to bring up a particular example, although there are many that I could, but to point out that this is not uh, a debate, this is not a discussion that many of us wanted to have. Many of us started uh, our political careers, or many, many people started their careers a long time before I did, looking at ways of working with China, seeking to find solutions that would quite rightly recognize the growth that China has shown in recent years as a way of, and, and to use it as a way of harnessing enormous amounts of opportunity, not just for the Chinese people, but for everyone. Many of us looked at, for example, the amazing energy that was put in by PC Chang in 1948 into the UN Charter of Human Rights. And many people have looked at various ways in which the reforms of the 80s and then indeed of the 2000s sort of saw China become a global powerhouse. And indeed, I think the UK was among many countries that was quite right to uh, seek to adapt the international system um, with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and many other ways in which China's position has been more recognised. But despite all that, despite those attempts to make a real difference in the way the world is governed, recognise that China wasn't always at the table in the 50s and 60s and 70s when many of these rules were decided. Despite all that, the difference under General Secretary Xi has become incredibly uh, clear. Now, that marked difference means that we are now dealing with a very different China to the one many of us hoped we were dealing with when we began uh, this conversation, as it were, 15, 20 years ago. Because the reality is we are not dealing with a China that is playing its part as a fair member of the WTO. We're not dealing with a China that is recognising the agreements that it struck over Hong Kong or indeed uh, the civil rights of its own citizens. I can list, and you don't need me to go into it, the huge human rights abuses of Hong Kong. You can, I can list uh, the abuses of the Uyghur Muslims, the mass detentions, the forced sterilizations, and the cultural genocide of Xinjiang, I can list similar in Tibet and even in, in Mongolia. And so it's worth remembering that this is not something that many of us wanted to start. This is, I'm afraid, a changed world and change coming from Beijing. So the question is, what should we do about it? How should we get tough? What should we be doing in order to try to reset the agenda? And this is where I think that the main focus of this debate should really be. Because the idea that we can simply let it pass and pretend it doesn't matter, I'm afraid, sadly, uh, is too late. And I would argue, therefore, that the real key to this question is to either accept, you know, it's too late, we've been defeated, the day's over, and China has won, or to say, actually, no, the values that we stand for the values that matter to us, to human rights, democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, privacy, and many other things that I could describe as very loosely as Western values, but frankly, they're no more Western than they are Eastern as they are practiced in Japan and Taiwan and Singapore and many other parts of the world uh, as well. But this is a really fundamental uh, challenge between uh, all of us 
in reasserting those things that matter to our communities. Now, I think there are various things we can do. Some of them we do because we are in government or have been in government, as, as Kishore has been, and we work with others to shape uh, the way that we work with work in the international community. We partner through the bipartisan defence agreement, we partner through the Five Eyes community, we partner perhaps through new alliances with Japan, with Taiwan, with South Korea, maybe with new alliances with India. And we shape the world through that partnership of democracies, the alliance of democracies that uh, President-elect Biden has been talking about through the D10, which Prime Minister Johnson has been talking about. We partner through different structures that defend the values. And we remember that actually the rules that matter, indeed, that formed the basis of the gas agreements in the 40s and grew into the WTO, were the rules of independent democratic countries obeying international law in order to defend the principles that kept their people free. So we could either do that or we could let it pass. But I think that there is more than simply the government's position in this. Because it's easier, it's easy, I mean, it's much easier for people like me to talk about the government, but actually have a look at what companies are doing. Because actually companies are voting with their feet. Yes, of course, it's true that there are many enormous companies in uh, China, and certainly uh, Shanghai has uh, demonstrated that its exchanges can attract money to generate investment around the world. But it's also true that companies that can, companies that do have a choice, choose very clearly. If you look at, for example, where the data centers are for Apple and Google, they choose uh, Singapore and India over China, and they choose it very clearly. When you see what companies that don't have a choice have happened to them, you can see why. If you look at Ant, for example, recently where Jack Ma was trying to get a listing, well, apparently he's not allowed one um, because the state said no. So we're seeing companies making the kinds of decisions that we are talking about. But sadly, we're also seeing various international organizations uh, making decisions that are problematic. We saw a little while ago the International Telecoms Union, which although it's 155 years old, is actually a UN agency now, which for those of us who aren't uh, particularly technically minded, isn't just about uh, squiggly amps and uh, megahertz. It's actually now about shaping various elements of the rules of the internet and things like that. And what we started to see is ideas put forward by uh, the Chinese uh, director general that would seek to change the internet from a, a distributed network of the type that we are so used to today into one that is much more centralized on nation states and national capitals. Now, this is a challenge that we've seen only supported by countries like Russia and Venezuela. But as China's influence grows, that could fundamentally change not just the way Chinese people are able to access information or Russian people are able to access information, but the way all of us work. So I'm going to leave it really there because um, there's plenty more to say, but I'm sure that those things will come up in questions and in discussion. And just say the world is changing around us. We're effectively having a systems reset where China, where China is trying to reboot from a distributed network into a centralized one. We're seeing the Belt and Road Initiative being used uh, as a almost cut and paste model from what was used to redevelop internally in China to how to influence uh, abroad. And we're seeing a really challenged and changing environment in terms of the violations of human rights and democracy. And so the choice for us really is not whether we should try and defend our values, but how. Because if we choose not to, we will find we wake up in a world where we no longer can. 
Thanks very much, Tom. That's Tom Tugendhat opening the case on whether it's time to get tough with China. And now I'd like to call upon Kishore Mabubani to oppose the motion. Thank you very much uh, for having me. It's such a great pleasure and honor to be on, although it's uh, 2.30 a.m. in Singapore. <laughs> so if I fall asleep, you'll understand this is not the debate, it's just the time. <laughs> uh, let me begin by saying very clearly what my case is going to be. Uh, the, my case, quite simply, in opposition to the motion, it's time for the West to get tough on China, is number one, it won't work. Number two, it's not wise. And number three, there are better ways of uh, getting China to improve itself or change its behavior. So first point, why won't it work? The simple answer is that China is too big. I mean, there, were, there was, of course, a time when the West could trample all over China, you know, send its forces in, force the Chinese to accept opium, uh, have British settlements in Shanghai, and sack the Summer Palace. I mean, the West could do anything it wanted vis-a-vis China, right? 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. This is 2020. Times have changed. China has become much stronger and much more powerful. And the European states, including UK, have learned to adjust to power. I'll give you a concrete example. In the year 2001, after 9-11 happened, just terrible, the United States became the first modern developed country to introduce torture, a clear violation of all the human rights provisions that uh, Tom has uh, mentioned earlier. And torture is absolutely unacceptable. But guess what? When the United States reintroduced torture, not one European government criticized the United States, not one. Pragmatism. They knew it wouldn't make a difference, right? So the Europeans have learned how to be pragmatic on human rights issues. So, and what the rest of the world sees, of course, is double standards. You know, you'll criticize China, but you won't criticize uh, United States. And so that's why I say it won't work. But the second reason why it won't work is that the West, which, by the way, only represents 12% of the world's population, 88% live outside the West, have very diverse interests today, very diverse interests. And so, for example, I agree, the United States clearly has launched a major geopolitical contest against China, which I document in my book, Has China Won, as Marvin mentioned. But the European Union has got very different interests vis-a-vis China. The number one challenge to the European Union is not going to come from Russian tanks. Russian tanks are not going to invade Europe anymore. The biggest challenge the European Union faces is that the demographic challenge from Africa. In 1950, Africa's population was double that of Africa's, 1950. Today, Africa's population is more than double that of Europe. And by 2100, Africa's population will be 10 times the size of Europe. So Europe has got a very strong national interest to promote the development of Africa. And you know what? The best partner, if you want to promote the development in Africa, is the biggest new investor in Africa, which is China. And which is this explains why several European Union states, including Italy, Greece, and others, have joined the Belt and Road Initiative because they see that the development of Africa is in Europe's strategic interest. 
And so if you want European, European states, they won't sacrifice their interests just to join the British in criticizing China. And the other point I will make, which is I guess I hope you'll bear this in mind all the time, when I said that the, the world, when the West represents only 12% of the world's population, 88% lives outside the West, and most of the 7 billion people don't want to join any Western crusade against China. So that, that's the key reason why you shouldn't do it. But the second reason is that it's not wise because, you know, when at a, at a time when China has emerged from what they call a century of humiliation and now that the Chinese people have seen the greatest poverty upliftment program in human history with 800 million people rescued from poverty, just when their lives are getting better, the West is once again knocking them and kicking them. And the Chinese will then come back very ferociously and say, you have no moral right to lecture us. Because when we were weak, when we were downtrodden, when our people were suffering from poverty, when our people were suffering from famine, when our people were suffering from starvation, you didn't bring human rights to us. What did you do? You conquered us. You trampled on us. You burned our summer palace. And so as a result of that, what you're going to get in return from China is a massive amount of anger, which is not going to work in the interests of the West over the long term. So Napoleon was very wise when he said, let China sleep. For if it wakes, it will shake the world. And so far, China has been rising peacefully, hasn't fought a war in 40 years, hasn't fired a bullet in 30 years. Why do you want to provoke this uh, uh, dragon and make it angry, right? And the second reason why it's not wise is that China can retaliate. Now China is so much bigger. I mean, China's GNP, by the way, is almost six times the British GNP. And today, after Brexit, when you're trying to forge a new future for the UK, when you're trying to make the London as a financial centre very strong, London's prospects as a financial centre will be hugely damaged if you cannot trade in the renminbi, the currency of the second biggest economy in the world. And actually, London has worked out some very good, wise, prudential arrangements uh, with China. All this is going to be jeopardised by, 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 by any kind of crusade against China. And then you will find quite what will happen then. Every country will say, okay, this is not where my interests lie. I'm sure we will discuss uh, uh, Australia uh, in due course. But in some ways, Australia has also blocked China, uh, into China in the corner by publicly uh, criticizing China, by making the Chinese lose face. And for the Asians, losing face is, is something terrible. And now, uh, sadly, I, as a friend of Australia, I feel very sad because Australia has uh, got itself stuck into a position which will be very difficult for it to extricate itself for. So finally, in the one or two minutes I have, let me just suggest how are the better ways for managing China. And here, as someone who was a diplomat for 33 years, as someone who studied Western philosophy, and when I was ambassador to the UN, I always said, if you want to persuade someone, use reason logic and charm and then you can get your point of view across especially to someone who's much bigger 
than you. And I do think that if you do that privately with the Chinese and talk to them and explain that some of the things they're doing are wrong, they should do them better, you're more likely to have an impact and see changes. And it's also important to realize that at the end of the day, what matters to the Chinese government is how the Chinese population, how the 1.4 billion people in China regard the government of China. And you, you have to know that the Harvard Kennedy School, the Ash Center came out with a study, a very serious, rigorous academic peer-reviewed study, which said that support for the Chinese government among the Chinese people has gone up from roughly 86% in 2003 to 95% in 2016. So this is a government that enjoys the support of its people and you're not going to move it through any kind of criticism from outside. Instead, try to have a decent, respectful dialogue with the government of China and you're more likely to achieve whatever you want to achieve with China. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kishore Mabubani, for putting forward such a compelling speech, but also for staying up until some ungodly hour to do it. Much appreciated. We've got some questions piling in already, so we'll turn to one from Eric Levine first. We may as well start with something controversial. He asks, should there be a reckoning with China on the export of coronavirus? To you first, Kishore. Well, there's no doubt that China made very serious mistakes at the beginning in its handling of coronavirus. And it was very unfortunate that the news was suppressed at the beginning. But at the same time, if you, if you talk to doctors who have been involved in these kinds of viruses, and in fact, as you know, Singapore experienced SARS in 2003, you know, when a new virus emerges, there's a lot of confusion, uncertainty about what is, uh, what is happening. So the initial phase of confusion is quite normal. But of course, subsequently, as we know, China did a very good job of uh, uh, suppressing it. And, and, and at the same time, you know, there are lots of, I must say, there are lots of falsehoods that are being spread about China and, uh, and the virus from Wuhan. Because even President Trump, I was shocked. President Trump said this in the UN speech. He said that China allowed international flights out of Taiwan when it blocked domestic flights out of Wuhan. Sorry, Wuhan, not Taiwan. That China allowed uh, international flights out of Wuhan when it blocked domestic flights. That's not true. There's an there's a academic called Daniel Bell who studied in great detail all the flights from Wuhan. And it's not true that China allowed. So there are lots of myths about China that are not true. But the, more, the person you should listen to is the editor of Lancet, Richard Horton. I believe he's in the UK. He, he's documented that all the warnings were given to, to Europe and the US at the end of January. I must repeat that. By the end of the January, Lancet published, I think, five or eight papers describing the virus, how dangerous it is, how it spreads, how we need to get PPE, and everything was spelled out. And the Western governments, unfortunately, failed to heed the warnings given by Lancet, a British, news, a British journal. So I think we should not assign all the blame to China, but also take some responsibility ourselves for our failure to deal with it. And Kishore, just picking up on that, obviously there is a lot of confusion at the start of a virus and you're right, they were very good at suppressing it, suppressing the virus quite early on. But news has emerged today. There are reports which show that they were also very good at suppressing 
information about the number of cases they had, and they were actually far worse than we were told, which obviously would have changed the world's view of the virus. Do you think they did have a job in mishandling that? Well, I would say, you know, I, as I said, China has made mistakes and I'm very happy that the World Health Organization is setting up an independent, impartial inquiry to what happened. And I think it's best if you want to get the facts, let's not pass judgment. Let the inquiry do its work. I, I believe it's going to uh, if it started or it's starting soon. And they'll go there, they'll investigate, they'll get all the data and, and, and they will share it. But the... Some things are, are very sort of undeniable, okay? And, and, and just, for, just as an example, okay, uh, you know, China has had about a few thousand deaths from COVID-19. If the United States had the same number of deaths proportional to its population, instead of having 240,000 deaths, United States would have less than 1,000 deaths. And why do I give this statistic? It shows you how competent China has been in saving lives in China compared to how the United States has been so incompetent in losing lives in America. And Tom, some, some politicians have called for reparations for, for coronavirus. Where do you stand on this? Uh, I'm not uh, particularly interested in, in, in reparations. The, the Chinese, sadly, people will, will suffer because the global economy will suffer. And China is a major exporting country and so is dependent very highly on the ability of other countries to buy stuff. I must, if I may, just quickly step in and say there's just a few issues that I'm going to take take apart slightly. I mean, Kishore is the most wonderful diplomat, and by the way, the most brilliant writer. I strongly recommend you you read his books. If not if not for the argument, then certainly for the style, which is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but the suppression of uh, coronavirus in in China was certainly achieved by mass incarcerations in a way that no free country could possibly attempt. It also, by the way, was achieved with the mass incarceration of doctors who identified it. And many people will remember the disappearance of Dr. Li Wenyang and the arrest and silencing of other doctors in Wuhan in the very early days, which actually started in November. So we've, we've had, you know, I'm afraid, uh, quite a lot of evidence that it's not entirely surprising. Dictatorships do like to silence and do like to silence with fear. And China is a very effective dictatorship. I must just also pick up a very minor point, if I may. America's torture allegations and, and, and torturing and waterboarding in the uh, aftermath of the Patriot Act was hugely criticised in the United Kingdom. Germany passed various laws against it. The UK was forbidden to transfer prisoners to the United States because of it. There were massive protests and massive outcry, not only by British parliamentarians and French and German and many others, but actually by civil society and by the government, which prevented the transfer of prisoners to the United States for fear that they would be tortured. So the idea that it sort of somehow passed unnoticed and was uncriticized, I'm afraid is simply not true. And I do love the idea that China was held back by uh, the West. The the reality is that the the rise uh, of China in the last 20 years has been because I I use the term Western very loosely. I don't really mean Western in the sense of European. I mean countries that obey, uh, that have the principles of democracy and freedom of speech and the rule of law and things like that. You know, China's rise came not because of communism, but because it abandoned many aspects of the communist system that had put 850 or rather more million people into poverty, but because it joined the World Trade Organization that lifted them out. uh, And it was able to join in with various of the economic uh, processes. 
And I'm afraid the idea that China hasn't fired a shot is simply not true. Not only is it internally conducting some of the most repressive uh, actions, it's had at least 600 aerial violations of Japanese airspace, similar number of Taiwanese. And we all know about the conflict that's going on in northern India and indeed recent invasion and building within Bhutan, a, a country that measures its prosperity by a national happiness index and still has not been to war at all. So, you know, this is, I'm afraid this is a very, it's a very positive view of Beijing's stance. And though I admire Kishore's charm and diplomacy, I'm afraid I, I do challenge some of the elements. Can I, can I respond just in a minute? Uh, just very briefly. Yeah, very quickly. On, on, the, on the suppression of Li Wenliang, please read an article written by a Yale University professor, Stephen Roach, who points out that many of the facts about the suppression are not true. On torture, the key point I was making is that no, no European government on record criticized the United States. Especially UK did. Appeared, no, no, not, not on record. Not on record. Please, please go and check. Uh, there were protests in the UK. The British media were outraged, but the, there was no official statement from the British government criticizing the US government for torture. And if there is one, I hope you will send it to me, please, after this. There is none. And then on the, and the question of, you know, you have to make a distinction between China's external behavior and its internal behavior. Now, fortunately, UK is very far away from China, but from those of us who live next door to China, what matters to us a lot is China's external behavior. And, and when I say China hasn't fought a war across its borders, that's absolutely true. The last war it fought was in 1979 against Vietnam. And he hasn't fired a shot across, across his borders since 1989 uh, when there was a naval skirmish between Chinese and Vietnamese naval forces. But after that, and of course, it's very tragic to see the loss of lives at the India-China border. And what's interesting is that both sides respected the agreement not to fire shots at each other and they actually killed each other with fists and, 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 and clubs. So there was actually an agreement from two countries not to fire shots at each other. And by contrast, just to, just to illustrate this, Obama was a very peaceful president. In the last year of his presidency, Obama administration dropped 26,000 bombs on seven countries. China hasn't done that. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. We are running short of time, so I, I want to, to, to move on to one of the subjects that's impossible to ignore with this debate, and that's Hong Kong. We've had a question from Ralph Simon asking, should China be brought to the international court for abrogating the treaty with the UK that was formalised at the end of the British lease of the territory of Hong Kong? Kishore. Well, <laughs> you, I mean, you can take China to the World Court, but, you know, countries basically will ignore its decisions. If I'm not mistaken, I think Tom probably knows better than I do, there was recently a case brought against the United States and the United Kingdom and the World Court. And the World Court reached a decision that U.S. and U.K. should leave Diego Garcia. And as far as I know, U.S. and U.K. have decided not to abide by the World Court decision. And similarly, when Nicaragua tried to take the United States to the World Court, over very clear, blatant interference in Nicaragua's internal affairs, Ronald Reagan just left the World Court. So for, for great powers, and this is not just, just, not just true of China, but all great powers, uh, when you put them before international legal tribunals, they'll say, I'm really sorry, my national interests matter much more. So just as you, United States, UK will not abide by world court rulings, China will not abide by them. So as I say, that's not a wise thing to do. If you want to, and if you want to help the people of Hong Kong, and by the way, I really want to help the people of Hong Kong, find wiser ways of talking to uh, China and Hong Kong and explain what they're doing. May not, it may not be the best for China, it may not be the best for Hong Kong, but let's, try, let's talk to them privately and don't try to take them to the world court. It won't work. Tom? I have to say, I agree with Kishore on this. I don't, I don't see much point in it. No point going to the international court. Catherine Landell has written in with a very good question saying, may I ask, how can we be sure that the Chinese government enjoys 95% support of the people? Kishore, I suppose that goes back to, to you. There, there yes, isn't yes. much trust in, in, uh, yeah. in the this, this system. And, 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 and by the way, I think the uh, scepticism is justified. Very difficult to get information uh, from China. And China is not an open society in the way that the UK and US are. But at the same time, I have, I have some respect for the Harvard University and some respect for the Ash Center of the Harvard Kennedy School. 
and they sent in their researchers and did very serious ground research. Okay, I'm, I'm saying they had people on the ground talking to people, and if you read that study by the Ash Center, it's a, the the methodology was very rigorous, and and obviously Harvard Kennedy School is putting his name to the study and saying we have come up uh, with a result that they enjoy ninety five percent support. That's one point. Second point. There's another organization called Edelman, Edelman Trust. The Edelman Trust Barometer just came out, the latest report, which I participated in the launch in, which said that they also arrived at a figure of over 90%, 95% support in China for the Chinese government. And finally, by the way, if anyone watching this show, if they have, a, if they have time, please go visit China and walk on the streets and look and ask yourself, do the people look cowed as though they are in a police state? And I saw that. I was in Moscow in 1976. I've seen what it is like to be in a state which suppresses its people. And I've been to a place where there are no police around. In fact, when you go to China, what is surprising is how few policemen are around. And the amount of entrepreneurship that you see in China, which is the, the second highest in the world today after the United States, is a result of the fact that the people are happy and active and participating in all these activities. So there are all kinds of evidence to back up the plane came that there's so much support for the Chinese government. I mean, but that, again, as I said, read the Harvard Kennedy School study. Uh, Anil Nanda writes in with a question for Kishore. Of course, the UK is not strong enough to stand alone against China, but what would your advice be to Joe Biden? Uh, he should read my book. <laughs> no, seriously. Okay, you know, the tragedy, by the way, and I think we, we, we should all be worried, huh? That at a time when we have more pressing global challenges like COVID-19, when we have to worry about global warming, let us, let us acknowledge that we live on a small, imperiled planet Earth, okay? There are much more serious issues that humanity has to deal with. So my advice to Joe Biden is, okay, you, even if you cannot stop the geopolitical contest between the US and China, just press the pause button for a few years. Let's get rid of COVID-19. Let's kill it completely. And, you know, as a result of COVID-19, 100 million people have fallen back into poverty. So what's more important, having a geopolitical contest or rescuing 100 million people from poverty? So that's what we should be focused on. And I would tell Joe Biden right now, work with, not just with China, with the whole world together, united, to get rid of COVID-19, to address the challenges of global warming, to address the issues of biodiversity, the issues of overfishing in our, in our oceans. These are the more important issues, and we should be working together with China, because if China is not part of the solution, China becomes part of the problem. Tom, turning to you, I'm very curious. The question does point out that the UK wouldn't necessarily be capable of standing up to China alone. How do you see that working out in your discussions in the, in the conservative China research group? I mean, do you have alliances? Do you, do you have people in America and other places who, who are keen to, to adopt a more aggressive stance? Well, it's not. I don't think it's an aggressive stance. I think it's a defensive stance. And uh, I think we do have alliances. Look, it's completely right. Britain is a population of some sort of 65 million people. We may have one of the finest armed forces in the world. Of course, I'm biased. And we may have uh, some of the most entrepreneurial people in the world. And again, maybe I'm a little bit biased. But look, we do. And most importantly, however, we have a network of friends. And, you know, Kishore's country is, is one of the UK's closest friends uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. But we're also privileged to have very strong alliances with India, with Pakistan, with Australia, with the United States, uh, with Japan, with South Korea. And in the recent years, I mean, literally in the last year or two, 
I've had conversations about this with many, many others. And indeed, the conversations I have with my opposite number, uh, Norbert Röttgen in the United States, or with Jim Risch in the United... Uh, sorry, Norbert Röttgen in Germany, Jim Risch in the United States, are very similar, because actually we do see the challenges that we're coming across from a destabilizing and somewhat more aggressive China than we have been used to for many years as imperiling us all. Now, you know, I'm personally very fond of Australian wine, so I'm rather, uh, I'm not too bothered about the trade sanctions on Australian wine, but I can see that if I were an Australian producer, I would be extremely uh, concerned. And this level of sort of economic bullying that we're beginning to see is really quite noticeably different from from many years in the past. And I have to say, my experience of being in Beijing was clearly quite different to Kishore's. Not only was I very aggressively followed uh, by uh, secret police officers, but anybody I spoke to was picked up and questioned for several hours, and in fact, in one case, uh, for several days afterwards. Look, it's true that China has a very growing uh, economy, but it also has a very repressive state structure. And, and the further you leave uh, the east coast of China, the closer you get to the remoter parts, the more repressive it is. I'm afraid, you know, if, if you're a Uyghur Muslim, we were speaking only this morning to people like Rahman Mahmoud, uh, who's one of the Uyghur um, people who's managed to escape. Uh, she will tell you in great detail the level of repression of um, non-ethnic Han Chinese, non-ethnically Han Chinese in mainland China. And I'm, I'm sorry, it's a very very authoritarian police state. So I'm, I'm sure they can get 95% of the vote. It's the way they get it that concerns me. We are running out of time, but I'm going to squeeze in one final question um, for Tom. And this is from Andrew Seaton. It just points out there are a number of global problems, including climate change and economic recovery, which China has to be a part of the response to. So how do you balance you know, talking about a tougher Western approach with encouraging Chinese engagement on those issues? Well, this is where Kishore is absolutely right. You can, you can have areas where, frankly, life is difficult, but there are other areas where you simply must engage. And as he says, with charm and intelligence, if we're talking about uh, climate change, the fact that China is currently building a couple of coal-powered fire stations a week when most of the world is getting rid of them is a real problem. But it's not just a problem for us. Actually, one of the things that's very little covered in the West is the number of uprisings every day in mainland China. Now, they're small, there's a few hundred people, and they're constantly and very actively repressed by the Chinese police force. But they do come out. And if you follow various people on Twitter and on other forms of social media, you've got to change people you follow quite frequently because they get closed down all the time. But you can see that there is a spate of unrest within China. And a lot of it is, in fact, climate related. It's to do with pollution, it's to do with poisoning of waterways and so on. But it's also to do, uh, but the Chinese government also has a further interest and not just civil unrest or rather the attempts to control it. But actually the production of food, as we know, China produces roughly 145 megatons of rice every year. It imports a further two megatons of rice. And where does this rice come from? Well, from the eastern seaboard. And as pollution is getting worse and as water uh, consumption is getting greater, uh, the salination of the paddies is getting higher. Now, this is having a very severe impact for many people. And now that is fundamentally in the interests of the Chinese people and indeed in the Chinese state uh, in order to avoid unrest on the eastern seaboard. So there are areas where we, we really can work together and we must work together. And with any luck, we can build on those areas where we work together into others. Because the truth is, if we don't recognize civil rights, if we don't recognize individual rights and human rights, then I'm afraid we don't have many hopes for anyone. 
we really are oh, up against yeah. it now. So, well, I'm uh, yeah, sure life. I'm. Ah, that's. that's I've got to go and vote. Right, fair enough. Well, so do we. Sorry. So do we. So I'm afraid we're going to have to miss out on Tom's summer summary, unless you can hang on for another second. But Kishore, you've you've got you've got two minutes to to just sum up your your side of the argument. Uh, Kishore, well, I you know very quickly the when Tom referred to all the protests in China, that's correct. And the Harvard Kennedy School discusses this protest. There were forty thousand protests a year, but these are not protests intended to overthrow the central government. These are protests, local protests, trying to get the attention of the central government. Please come and help us and deal with these issues. And, and this, is, this is documented in great detail in the Harvard Kennedy School study. And many of them, if you ask them, uh, do they want to overthrow the Chinese government? They say, of course not. And you know the sense of pride that the Chinese people have in, in, in what China has accomplished is enormous. So you're not dealing with a, you see, unlike the Soviet Union, where you're dealing with a government that was in power by oppressing its people, the Chinese government today is not in power because it's oppressing the people. It enjoys great support. So you're not just taking on the Chinese government if you want to take on China. You're taking on 1.4 billion people. And I would say that's very unwise to do this because you don't want to alienate 1.4 billion people if you want to find solutions for planet Earth. And finally, Tom, I know you have to go to vote, but before you do, why should we be voting for you? Look, the reality is we want a partnership with 1.4 billion people. We want a partnership with 1.4 billion free people, as we do with uh, about 7 or 8 or 9 billion people uh, around the world. What we do have to recognise, though, is, and Kishore is the most wonderful diplomat, I have to say, and, and filled with charm and, uh, and, and subtlety. But the reality is we are dealing with a brutal dictatorship in Beijing that murders its opponents, that sends uh, protesters to prison, that threatens the families of people who seek an education here in the UK or elsewhere, and that uh, commits the mass sterilisation and detention of religious minorities. I wish it weren't so. What we actually need to see is human rights recognised in China. And then maybe we'll see the economic rights of so many soar and all of us prosper. Tom, thanks very much. The division bell has rung. It's definitely time to vote. So you've now got a chance to, to take part in the final vote on the motion. It's time for the West to get tough with China. Please vote for or against the motion. And if you're still not sure, please vote undecided. You can do that now. Thank you very much to the guests who've taken part tonight. Thank you to Kishore Mabubani, who stayed up until 2.30 or later now in the morning in Singapore. And thanks very much to Tom Tugendhat, who should really be off voting, and I'm hoping he is now. We hate to hold up democracy. But thank you both for what's been a fascinating debate. It's certainly one of the biggest issues of our lifetimes, and you are two of the the best guests really to, to, to debate it so thank you very much for taking part for anyone who, who who would like to please do tweet about the event you can use the hashtag iq2 and we'll hopefully have the results of the vote for you in just a moment in the meantime though thank you very much for listening and thank you in for very much for tuning in from wh- wherever you're you're doing that it's much appreciated we will be back to, to live events soon can't wait <laughs> finally I can bring you the results of tonight's final vote. Just a reminder first, the vote at the end of, before we began, 
was 59% for the motion, 16% against and 26% were undecided. There has been a change. It's now gone down to 49% for the motion about getting tougher with China, uh, 33% against and 18% undecided. So thank you very much to everyone for voting and thank you again to the speakers for taking part. And thank you to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event.